I'm making my semi-annual appearance as a seminar overlord. I'm going to make this quick. Uh, we're having a transition in seminar chairs. So I first wanted to thank Tim and Leah, who have hosted seminar for the last six or seven months for all their hard work and actually starting uh, some of the hybrid seminars back in person and uh, hosting five different additional seminars in the last two weeks. So thank you very much to them. Uh, for taking this on. And our two new seminar chairs are Shanna Chu, who's at Mendenhall uh, here at Moffat Field, and Evan Hirakawa, who was at Mendenhall and is now a full-time research geophysicist. So I'm going to pass it off to them. Thanks to them for, for taking on this responsibility. Take it away. All right. Thanks, Justin. So welcome to the Earthquake Science Center seminar for September 7th. Um, as a reminder, turn off your cameras and mute your microphones today and uh, live captioning is available, which is available on the top uh, tab under the more tab with the three dots there. Uh, only announcement that I have is that there's no seminar next week because of the SCEC meeting. Uh, and now today our speaker is Ethan Williams from Caltech. And I've been told that he will actually accept questions in the middle of his talk. Just try to raise your hand. Um, and now I'm going to pass it off to Lisa Schleicher to introduce. Hey, everybody. I'm excited to introduce to you Ethan Williams. He's a graduate student at Caltech Seismological Laboratory working with Zongwen Zan. Previously, he received his BS in geophysics from Stanford University in 2017. And Ethan's research primarily focuses on fiber optic sensing um, of the seafloor with diverse applications from seismic tomography to monitoring ocean waves to, and currents. And under the guidance of Tom Heaton, he has recently forayed into engineering seismology, uh, leveraging the so-called large N and large T data sets for structural or seismic structural health monitoring and site characterization, which is the subject of today's talk. And um, I'm presenting Ethan just because I happened to run into him at SSA and um, was excited to see he's working with the Millikan building and the Strong Motion Project has a seismic array there. And uh, although he's the one the one um, streaming station there, so he'll see more about that. I was just super curious to talk to him about kind of uh, some of the research interests out there and in, in structures and you know the kind of things people want to do these days in um, engineering seismology and. And we also had a lot of great discussions on, on DAS, and I knew people in our group here were interested in that. So uh, with that, Ethan, take it away. I'm looking forward to discussion. Thanks so much, Lisa. Um, thank you for the invitation. I'm really happy to give this seminar today. Um, before I get started, I want to thank the collaborators that have put a lot of work into this. This is really the um, uh, combination of two different talks on two different subjects. And so on the first um, has been working with Tom Heaton, who's had a long-standing interest in the, it's now called Caltech Hall, but formerly Millikan Library um, on the Caltech campus, which is a structural engineering test bed. Um, and then secondarily, we've had a lot of support from people at the Universidad de Alcala in Madrid and Marlinx, a cable company in Belgium, in acquiring um, interesting engineering-related um, fiber optic data in Europe. So thanks to them. Um, the motivation for today's talk is, is pretty simple, at least as I'm kind of thematically organized it. Um, data is exploding in contemporary seismology. There was just a fantastic review um, out on big data seismology. 
Um, and if you just look at the size of the IRIS archive, which is just one of the uh, you know, modern seismological data archives, you can see that there's near exponential growth of seismic research data in, in the last decade or so. Um, and this has enabled some really amazing things. The so-called large N sensing, um, especially with nodal arrays, where you have many sensors and therefore you're able to see things in unprecedented resolution, like this example um, recently from Daniel Trugman in Oklahoma, looking at the radiation pattern from a small earthquake, completely unaliased. Um, or large T applications, now that we have decades of continuous um, digital seismographic data, we can do things like reconstruct groundwater levels using seismic velocity perturbations over long terms in order to estimate uh, long-term changes in groundwater storage. But unfortunately, the structural and geotechnical communities are really lagging behind. If you look at this uh, iris plot here on the left, and you look at this little purple, oops, let me switch to the uh, laser pointer, this little purple or lavender strip, that's the volume of engineering data. Um, and admittedly, while a lot of the engineering data isn't archived by iris, you can see that it's only growing about linearly, um, whereas the rest of the data is growing about exponentially. And one of the reasons for that is that even in the U.S., but especially internationally, it's still very common for strong motion networks to be triggered. Um, KNET and KICKNET, the two largest strong motion networks in the world, are still only providing triggered waveforms. Um, and unfortunately, that means that you might spend thousands and thousands of dollars deploying hundreds and hundreds of stations, but over the span of decades, each of those stations might only record a few minutes of data. Um, and so the uh, engineering community kind of state of the art in terms of monitoring structures for damage in particular, um, it really falls behind um, where we are in seismology. And that's unfortunate. And my case in today's talk is really just to say there are frontiers in large N and large T seismology for engineering um, and structural dynamics that are at least as exciting and maybe a little bit easier to do because of the you know, limited scale of urban uh, infrastructure compared to the planet Earth. And so I'm hoping that there'll be some interests um, from people here like the National Strong Motion Project Group in um, working towards an implementation of uh, more big data friendly approaches. And so today's talk is in two parts. The first part focuses on this large T idea, um, long time series. So I'm gonna look at 20 years of continuous data from a single strong motion station in a building. Um, and among other things, this allows us to test the question, is, is elasticity in structures really linear and time invariant? And the answer is no, not even a little bit to spoil the conclusion. Um, and then for the second half, we're gonna be talking about distributed acoustic sensing, which I know some people with USGS have started exploring for earthquake early warning and other applications. And um, I'm gonna talk about looking at structural vibrations in the far field, kind of a novel observation, um, the seismic waves that are actually radiated away from structures when structures vibrate. So on to the first part. The, the subject of, of this study is Caltech Hall. It was called the Robert Millikan Memorial Library up until last year. Um, and it was constructed in 1967. And it's a nine-story uh, reinforced concrete building. And for its size, um, it's, it's really quite a stiff building. It has two 30-centimeter uh, thick reinforced concrete shear walls, which are on the east and the west faces of the building, represented here in the structural diagram. That's the face here that you're seeing. Um, and it's got a reinforced concrete moment frame and it's got a very thick reinforced concrete central elevator core and stairwell. Um, and so the building naturally because of the asymmetric shear wall design has 
asymmetric stiffness. Um, we can think about the deformation of a building like this in terms of three simple contributions. There is the rigid body translation of the building when it undergoes some shaking. There is the solid body rocking, meaning rigid body rocking, meaning that you can imagine the foundation is basically tilting or rotating about an axis. And then there's the fixed base shearing, where you can assume that there's some drift of the upper floors relative to the base. Um, and because of the shear wall design, meaning that the north-south direction is much more resistant to shear than the east-west direction, um, the north-south motions more approximate rigid body rocking, which means that they're much more sensitive to the soil properties because large deformations of the structure involve large deformations of the soil at the foundation level. Um, whereas the east-west direction is much softer um, and the motions approximate fixed base shearing. Um, so just keep those two ideas in mind. Um, that this building is really testing two different things in two different directions. Um, it has different sensitivity in each direction. But this building has been uh, studied for a very long time. You know, Caltech had civil engineering going in 1967 when it was built, and they monitored the building's stiffness and did actually a full-scale forced vibration test before the building was even completed in 1967. And the goal of that kind of study of forced vibration tests or an ambient vibration test in the structural health monitoring zone is to identify the natural frequency of a building. Um, engineers like to think of buildings as lumped systems of harmonic oscillators. And in that context, um, the natural frequency F is proportional to the square root of the stiffness. And so it's basically a proxy for the elastic state of the building. Um, and because it's been monitored for so long, both through uh, dedicated studies, there's over 50 papers on this building, and also because it's been a testbed for civil engineering classes at Caltech, um, there's a long record of detailed knowledge. And so when this building was first built in 1967, it was much stiffer than it is today. Um, it was damaged in the San Fernando earthquake. People don't really know how or what happened. There's actually quite a large debate in literature over whether or not we should think that the foundation slab is cracked um, because you can't actually see the foundation slab. So people have fought back and forth over various seismic structural health monitoring approaches trying to determine whether there's a change in uh, foundation flexibility. Um, but the general idea is that it experienced large motions um, during the San Fernando earthquake. There was a dramatic reduction in stiffness, and that reduction um, was permanent. Then we believe that the building was relatively stable across the 70s and the 80s, but there was less studied during that period. Um, and uh, in the subsequent moderate-sized earthquakes in Southern California throughout the 80s, Whittier Narrows, Sierra Madre, Northridge, the building's natural frequencies dropped a little bit each time, um, not enough to really indicate damage, but maybe something happens like basically a jackhammer effect. You know, you have 10% G in the building and it basically compacts the soil of foundation a little bit and changes the bulk stiffness. Those are the kind of ideas that have been proposed to describe this. Um, and then up till the present, this is basically the complete record because historically the building uh, only had triggered stations in it. And so what you're basically looking at is a, is a synthesized history based on only about 20 or so um, strong motion records. What we can do, oops, let's go forward. What we can do though uh, is, is improve that with continuous monitoring. So in, in 2001, um, Southern California Seismic Network installed a station on the ninth floor of Caltech Hall um, called CI.MIK and it's an epicenter. Um, and it has some other instrumentation associated with it, which I, I won't discuss today. There's some rotational sensors and other things in the building that are interesting. Um, but just this one basic normal epicenter has been recording continuously since May 2001. 
And so instead of looking at a, a scattered record of ambient vibration, forced vibration, and strong motion records, we can look at a continuous record of ambient vibrations um, over a 20-year period in order to track how the building is really changing in between these large earthquakes. And the answer is, if we compare here, May 2001 to May 2021, that there have been substantial changes in the building despite no damaging earthquakes occurring in the past 20 years. So if we look on the top here, this is the response spectrum for the east-west component. Um, you see a whole lot of things going on. All of these little spikes relate to motors in the building or resonances related to um, like the elevator or uh, AC system and are not seismological in origin. But these main big peaks here, this is the east-west one fundamental mode. This is the torsional mode, basically rotation of the building about its, its central axis. Um, this is the overtone, and then there's a torsional overtone. And in the same things, sort of thing we start to see on the uh, other component, um, just with different set of modes. And these have been extensively identified using um, force vibration tests to really eke out what the mode shape is and be sure that these are really the true modal frequencies. But if we just kind of summarize here briefly, you can see that this second torsional overtone has gone down in frequency. You can see that the shape of this uh, east-west overtone has really dramatically changed. It's hard to really track that over the last 20 years. And you can see that not only do we have more peaks down here by the fundamental frequency, but the fundamental frequency has gone up. And that's true for both the north-south and east-west directions. If we look at that in detail, you can see that increase here from black to red. And you can also see that there's this additional frequency. There's both crosstalk between the two components and beating between the two components. And that could be a result of a seismometer installation issue, to be quite frank, right? The epicenter could be rocking back and forth, and that's why we see the harmonic mean of these two frequencies and increased crosstalk. Um, but it could also mean that there's a redistribution of mass inside the building or that there's um, some sort of damage that's causing basically coupling between the two modal systems and increased torsion. Um, but this fundamental, regardless of how you want to interpret that, which we really can't with one station say anything more definitive about, um, the fundamental observation here is that over the last 20 years, the building has had a 5.1% increase in frequency in the east-west direction and a 2.3% increase in the north-south direction, which Recalling that frequency is proportional to the square root of stiffness means that the stiffness is increased by up to about 10%, um, which is surprising. Why is there long-term healing going on? This is the opposite of what we expect to be happening in reinforced concrete structures over their lifetime. You know, there's many known mechanisms of loss of stiffness. There's uh, chemical carbonation and chlorination reactions that can cause the degradation of concrete. There's thermal stressing, which can lead to surface falling and fracture formation. Of course, small earthquakes can cause the growth of pre-existing fractures, and rebar inside reinforced concrete can corrode over time too, uh, especially if it's exposed to water. Um, and so we just expect that reinforced concrete buildings should be getting softer and softer over their lifetimes. But yet here, Caltech Hall appears to be getting stiffer and stiffer, at least over the last 20 years. Since we have a continuous record and not just a couple of uh, triggered motions, we can actually map this out on a detailed way from one week to the next. So this is the weekly median power spectrum zoomed into these two fundamental frequencies, the east-west and north-south directions. And we can see that actually that just comparison, 2001 to 2021, even still oversimplifies what's going on. That the building uh, exhibits 9.7% variation in the uh, fundamental frequency over the last 20 years, meaning that there's about 20% variation in stiffness just passively going on. I mean, we can see that 
some of this has clear associations. There were some minor renovations that perplexingly were supposed to be completely non-structural renovations in 2003 and 2004. These were the removal of library books from three floors of the building, and instead they installed office partitions, which aren't attached to the moment frame, and they only abut the false ceiling. They don't actually connect to any of the structural components, and they're just um, wood and plastic. So why there'd be as much as a 2 to 3% increase in the natural frequencies of the building during those construction events is a complete mystery, since none of the major structural elements were involved, and the mass of the building didn't change substantially as far as we can tell. Um, following each of those events, the building initiated some sort of softening trend, um, which is still yet perplexing, because you expect that if you add structural elements to increase the stiffness of the building, they're bonded together with things like adhesive and plasters, and those generally stiffen with time over the months to years after application. Um, so for whatever reason, I don't have a good explanation here, the building uh, started softening after each of these construction events. Then we have the Chino Hills earthquake, and unfortunately there's a data gap, but something fundamentally changed between um, 2008 and 2015 or so, and both systems, the east-west direction and the north-south direction, started increasing at a rate of about um, 0 .1, uh, 0.01 hertz per year, um, which is interesting because it's pretty much a steady state healing process, right? That there's no significant change over this decade-long period in the rate of increase in stiffness. And again, I don't have a good explanation for that. Um, with a single station record, unfortunately, we can't decompose um, contributions from soil structure interaction of the foundation and from the actual superstructure itself. But clearly, there are very complicated long-term dynamics going on. What we can see, though, is that actually there was a significant response to the Ridgecrest earthquake. During the Ridgecrest earthquake, the peak um, accelerations uh, in the building were about 70 centimeters per second for both the 6.4 and um, 7.1 events. And that actually led to about a 2% drop in the fundamental frequencies. Um, so looking at everything, you can also see, if you zoom in, that in addition to those really large discrete events and long-term secular trends that um, are hard to explain because they're quite large changes um, compared to the causative mechanisms that are considered. Um, we also have these smaller variations, which are seasonal. Um, we can see that the east-west mode and also the torsional mode increase abruptly during periods of rainfall. Like, for example, you can see here in 2012 and in 2016, it's very clear. Um, following rainfall, and the, this has been modeled previously by um, Maria Todorovska at USC, um, who looked basically a poroelastic model of an embedded foundation. And the fundamental idea is that if you, you know, add water, you saturate the soils on the sides of your foundation and increase the horizontal stiffness of the foundation to shearing. Um, and so this is a quick modulation because basically as the shallow soil in the top few meters abutting the foundation drains out, um, you lose that temporary increase in stiffness. So that's easy to explain, but this is a lot harder to explain. So I, if you might remember from that first slide, the um, second torsional mode um, seemed like between 2001 and 2021, it had decreased by a lot. And if we look at it in detail, actually, there's a gigantic variability in excess of 9% from one year to the next. And just like the fundamental east-west mode, this uh, change is correlated with the onset of winter rainfall. 
But unlike the east-west mode, instead of decaying rapidly over a few weeks or a few months during the rainfall season as that shallow soil is draining, um, the perturbation to the apparent torsional stiffness in this mode is uh, basically annual, that it, it decays over the scale of a year. And this is much, really quite hard to understand. You know, why is the drainage time scale that would be inferred from a simple poroelastic model different for different modes? Um, one possible explanation is that there's a more vertical displacement in this frequency. If you remember, the east-west direction is the softest direction, and therefore it's dominated by shearing of the superstructure with a fixed base. Um, whereas the torsional modes, in particular the torsional overtones, because Caltech Hall has this asymmetric design, includes some non-negligible vertical displacement. And so if there's vertical displacement, then the stiffness of the embedded foundation is a function of basically the entire integrated stiffness of the soil underneath the foundation as well. And so you can imagine that we have seasonal rainfall, it brings up the water table, um, and then over the course of a year until the next rainfall, the water table is slowly drawing down and it might be quite far underneath the foundation, but it's um, still affecting the integrated vertical stiffness, basically the uh, resistance of the soil to an applied vertical point load. So that's one hypothesis which could be tested with modeling. What's convincing, I think, about this argument is that if we look at a soil moisture model, which captures the combined effects of precipitation, um, drainage, and uh, evapotranspiration, and is basically a proxy for the depth to fully saturated soil, the depth to the shallow water table, um, we can see that it basically matches the same time scale. So it seems like something about the depth to water is what's affecting this part of the stiffness. But it's what's amazing about this is how big of an effect that water has, right? It's a 9% change in this frequency. Um, and there is therefore by implication, you know, almost a 20% change in the stiffness of the components where, which are being represented by the second torsional mode. If we look instead at the north-south uh, direction, we can see that there's some actually effects, it's a little hard to see here, but there's some effects related to rain, but it's dominated by temperature-related effects, that there's a seasonal trend, which means that the building is stiffer in the summer and uh, softer in the winter. And this is about a 1% change per 10 degrees C. And probably the easiest explanation for why the north-south direction is exhibiting this really strong temperature sensitivity is because of the shear walls. When concrete is warm, it expands and becomes stiffer. Um, and the shear walls on the sides of the building that contribute to stiffness in the north-south direction are um, 30 centimeters thick. And that's about 10 times the uh, diurnal skin depth for forcing, uh, for harmonic forcing at, you know, 24-hour period, given the quite ordinary thermal diffusivity of concrete. And so what's probably true is that on a daily basis, the uh, you know 12 hour, 24 hour variations in uh, solar forcing on the sides of the building aren't penetrating very far in um, and causing a relatively small effect. Whereas on a seasonal scale, there are large changes in the um, thermal expansion of the uh, shear walls. So to kind of integrate this all together, um, We've observed from this 20-year continuous record that there are gigantic passive variations, both from environmental trends, minor construction work that we wouldn't have expected to cause major structural changes, um, small earthquakes that we know didn't cause damage, and also uh, passive trends uh, that we really don't understand 
that are contributing to a really dynamic time-dependent elasticity in the structure. And so we can plot that here comparing with forced vibration tests represented by X's, um, historical ambient vibration tests represented by triangles, earthquakes represented by dots, um, and the kind of inferred uh, history of this building has been to assume of following the dashed lines that the stiffness has been constant in between major earthquakes that could have caused damage. But what we see over the last 20 years is that that is not true at all, that there's this enormous variability. And that has some significant implications. One of them is that the building is about where it was before the Whittier Narrows earthquake, which is surprising. And we don't have a good explanation for why. Um, we know that there was cracking of some of the foundation components during some of these historical earthquakes. One possibility is that water flows through those components regularly, is depositing calcite all the time, and those components are healing back up again um, because of that mineral deposition. Another option is that the uh, foundation soils are just getting stiffer and stiffer and stiffer because of you know the lifetime of pounding by the building's vibrations during small earthquakes and forced vibration tests. Um, and so the soil structure interaction is, is becoming dominant. Um, another potential explanation is that there are long-term trends related to groundwater that could be, you know, moving fine particulates around, redistributing um, like little silt particles and therefore changing the bulk modulus of the subfoundation soils. It's very hard to tell with one record. This is something that I hope people investigate um, Further, it'll take some some detailed work with monitoring arrays with with array based um, effort to like look at mode shape changes. Um, but this is certainly a novel observation. As far as I'm aware, I've never seen any uh, other observations of buildings healing themselves. The other um, implication of this is that if this is how this building just behaves passively, that it's always increasing in stiffness, that from the scattered record of forced vibration tests and triggered seismic records, it's totally possible that the inferred reduction in stiffness during past earthquakes, which has basically been done by saying, oh, here was our last forced vibration test before the earthquake. Here's our next forced vibration test after the earthquake. What's the difference? That kind of simplistic analysis might significantly underestimate the reduction in stiffness in previous earthquakes. In particular, um, Whittier Narrows, which didn't have a reference point before it for about a decade, could have been significantly underestimated in how much damage the building. Um, and from the structural monitoring perspective, this is, of course, concerning because we observe that there are these earthquakes in the history of Caltech Hall that cause some minor damage and that the passive changes of the last two decades exceed that, um, that change. And so it may actually be very hard, given a scattered record of triggered motion records and forced vibration tests, just to even tell whether or not there is damage. Um, as you can see, over from these X's, the force vibration tests, over the last 30 years or so, the force vibration tests themselves, which are theoretically, you know, supposed to be more stable and more detailed than these ambient vibration measurements, have had a comparable level of variability. So this is, of course, uh, a concerning observation for the kind of current state of practice in structural health monitoring, which is just to take before and after pictures. So with, with this 20-year with this record, we can also um, look at earthquakes. And this allows us to start to look at the response to the building under different levels of excitation. There's over 600 events, greater magnitude four in Southern California over the last 20 years, um, well, in the, in the greater Southern California region in the last 20 years that have had a measurable um, acceleration at CI.MIK greater than the ambient noise floor. And you can see these plotted here on the left in terms of their um, 
frequency response. And you can see the, the color bar here is the log of the peak acceleration. And so um, for small amplitude earthquakes, the um, curve basically follows exactly along the trajectory we determined from ambient vibrations for the building's self-healing and all these seasonal variations related to rainfall. Um, but for larger earthquakes, they uh, drop down to a lower frequency. And this is a you know, relatively known effect that buildings soften dynamically under large, under large excitation. But the form of this um, nonlinearity is interesting. Uh, Importantly, if we go all the way up here to one meter per second squared, um, which is around the level of the um, Ridgecrest earthquakes, uh, we see that there's, first of all, a gigantic about 25% reduction in stiffness. Um, so the, 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 uh, we know those earthquakes didn't damage the building. They recovered almost completely. And so the, the change in elasticity during strong motion is, is very large. Um, second is that the uh, general curve here that you can see going from basically the intensity of ambient vibrations on the left to the Ridgecrest level earthquake on the right um, shows that there's really no linear elastic regime, that basically the re reduction in stiffness with increased amplitude is uh, pervasive across the entire measurable band all the way down to the level of ambient noise. And this is also consistent with forced vibration tests. Um, there's a a kinemetrics orbital vibrator in the building, and we can run force vibration tests at different levels of excitation. And these, which ones here were shown by the black X's, which were conducted in 2019, um, exactly match the earthquake records. And so that suggests that really this nonlinearity can be well described using the peak acceleration, um, that things like the shaking duration don't have as significant of an effect. So this was noted to some extent historically. From this very, very limited record of triggered records, people knew that there was this potentially power law um, nonlinearity. But what we can see is that it's really not strictly power law. First of all, this is, this is a kind of schematic representation, but it really there's two regimes. There's a weakly nonlinear regime here at um, low levels of excitation, where a 10 times increase in acceleration is about a 3% drop in frequency. And then above some thresholds that you know, I'm kind of defining roughly here, um, we observe a much steeper slope such that a, a 10 time increase in acceleration is about a 9% drop in frequency. Um, and this is consistent with what was observed with strong motion records. One reason that we could have this really complex trend between um, two different kind of intensities of nonlinearity is that the soil structure interaction could take over at some critical point. Um, we know that during earthquakes, the uh, reduction in stiffness of the um, soil foundation system becomes dominant for largest excitations. And so it seems likely that soil plasticity or nonlinear elasticity takes over and starts to contribute beyond a, a small strain threshold around here. And that this probably represents the weak uh, nonlinearity of the building materials themselves. Um, we can also compare over this period when we know that the background level of um, stiffness increased. And we can see that basically, regardless up until this threshold, um, everything just shifted up, that there's no change in the nonlinear response over time. Um, and that basically above that threshold, we don't have enough events to say anything statistically significant. But of course, we know that for most events, um, we get a recovery um, back to 
the pre-event frequency. And there's an interesting question, well, how does this happen? If we have this nonlinear response, a drop in the apparent stiffness during strong motion, what happens? Well, the answer is it, it kind of relaxes back slowly and it really follows about a log linear curve. So here's the record for the magnitude uh, 5.4 Chino Hills earthquake in 2008. At the onset of strong motion, we have this sudden drop in frequency um, and the frequency starts to recover. And this recovery curve persists long after the strong motion has abated, right? That the frequency is no longer proportional to the excitation level beyond some very short point after the peak acceleration. And if we look at another earthquake with a similar shaking duration, but a 10 times lower level of acceleration, we see that it follows a very similar curve. Um, and if we formalize this for all events, we can see that, well, there's quite a large scatter, probably due to the kind of order of magnitude differences in shaking duration for different earthquakes. The recovery is approximately log linear for all events, um, suggesting some sort of universal time scale. About 20% of the stiffness is recovered in the first 30 seconds, and about 80% is recovered by five minutes on average. Um, and this is not the first time something like this has been observed. It's been observed in about three other buildings and been quite widely observed in the rock physics, physics literature. And there's been an argument that I think has some issues, but there's an argument to, out there that there's this sort of log linear healing is really truly multi-scale, that it occurs over the scale of seconds to uh, months, maybe even years. And there's been a lot of interesting explanations ranging from kind of Arrhenius's law governing the thermodynamics of uh, material bonds, which we organize after significant motion, to the role, possible role of viscoelastic relaxation and fractures that might be opened during vibration and have to close again after the earthquake is over, or to even rate and state friction. You know, if we think about all these little fractures in this concrete structure being governed by Dietrich Arena friction, then the aging law sticks in this uh, log time dependence automatically. Um, but this is still very much a, an area of debate. But so to kind of wrap up part one here, which is really the meteor part of this talk, uh, I, I want to make some some broader generalizations. So first of all, the key observation is that we observe this gigantic variability in apparent stiffness in time size greater than one week. And this should really be taken as a minimum estimate because that underestimates one, uh, the effect, uh, it doesn't include the effect of the nonlinear response during strong motion, which can add easily another 20% reduction in stiffness on top of that. Then it also neglects the events that happen on a subweekly time scale. There's a study from 2006 by John Clinton when he was a PhD student at Caltech that showed that uh, on top of this seasonal change in rainfall, there's actually an, a change on the scale of one to three days right after a rainfall event. That's another 3% increase. Um, and of course, there's also changes during things like wind forcing and other meteorological conditions that are subweekly. So this 20% variability should be really taken as a minimum. Um, the second key observation is that there's strong nonlinear elasticity, it's time dependent, and there is no linear elastic regime. The nonlinearity persists down to the level of, of ambient vibration. And I want to make two conclusions. One conclusion from this first part is that, um, is a practical conclusion, is that we should really you have strong motion and engineering networks be continuous all the time. Um, because, as I discussed before, the passive variability means that if you just have a before and after picture, you can't really necessarily identify damage um, reliably. Um, I think the approach we should be going for is to treat these parameters of interest for structural health monitoring, like the natural frequencies of the damping of a structure, like a geodetic time series, where we can model and remove these seasonal variations and secular trends 
um, in order to estimate, just like we would for like a, a trying to estimate the co-seismic displacement of a GPS station, um, we can estimate the co-seismic change in stiffness of a building. Um, the other thing that I think is really important to point out here is that this kind of order five-minute time scale of uh, post-event recovery is longer than most triggered records are. So it may be that you can't even identify damage from a triggered record, no matter how fancy your analysis method, because it's still recovering. And so you can't really infer the asymptotic post-event frequency from a short record. Um, and finally, just to, uh, for this first part, just to kind of get a little bit speculative, but to, you know, think about how broad sweeping this is in terms of implications. If we, if we like go into a PSHA type framework, you know, there's lots of different things you can do in this zone, but you want to use an intensity measure, like the 5% damp spectral acceleration. You're inherently baking in, um, this single degree of freedom, linear time invariant elasticity. Um, and that means that you know, for any given building, you may be looking at, assuming that the sorts of variations you observe in Caltech Hall are universal in reinforced concrete structures, a hidden 20% variability in stiffness that's not accounted for in your current PSHA type uh, uncertainty propagation. And that because the stiffness of the building is always decreasing during strong motion and there's this time dependent recovery, you're basically going to always overestimate the stiffness um, using the kind of, you know, background reference level for the frequency. And therefore, the intensity measure becomes a little bit dangerous because for a stiff building like Caltech Hall, that's, you know, if it were to fail, it would probably fail because of like a stress concentration at some joint causing um, fracture of the concrete, right? It's, it's probably good to overestimate the stiffness because you're then overestimating the stresses and um, planning for a scenario that's much worse than what you're actually probably going to get because of the dynamic softening. But for soft structures or flexible structures like high-rise buildings, this is a really bad idea because uh, what you really care about from the failure perspective is the interstory drift. And the interstory drift in a stiff building is much less than the interstory drift in a soft building. And so overestimating stiffness by neglecting nonlinear dynamic elasticity um, is uh, a little bit perilous in that context. So that's the main meat of the talk. I, I'm going to now go through a couple interesting novel observations um, on the other side of big data. Um, instead of looking at uh, one station for a long time, we're now going to look at a lot of stations for a short time. Um, and I, I mentioned force vibration tests already. The force vibration tests in Caltech Hall are carried out with this 1972 uh, orbital mass vibrator, which we rebuilt in 2019. The general idea being that there are two counter-rotating buckets, here's our summer intern for scale, um, that apply a sinusoidal force along one direction of the building. Um, and there's substantial amplification, obviously, at the, structural, at the structure's resonant modes and the natural frequencies. And it's been known for a long time that this generates seismic radiation. In, uh, in 1970, uh, Paul Jennings, who was a professor of civil engineering at Caltech, realized that you could see the force vibrations of Millikan Library on the nearby Mount Wilson Observatory seismograph, which is 11 kilometers away and at the top of a mountain. Um, and you can see them in the raw data and the time domain on this uh, seismograph. So it's pretty impressive. Um, and what's happening here is that basically you know, the building is rocking and shearing, and that's causing displacement at the surface um, that's vertically polarized. And so it very efficiently excites Rayleigh waves in its normal modes. Um, and these can actually be observed throughout Southern California. There have been a few attempts um, 
one most recently by Toshira Tanamoto at UCSB, to use this data for imaging or subsurface investigation. Um, Toshiro showed that actually if you stack four hours of continuous shaking, you can see this data as a, dis as a discrete spectral peak as far south as Mexico, which is just astonishing. Um, I think that you have to really kind of do some back of the envelope calculations about the kinetic energy involved in a building like this size once it starts to get moving before you can really believe that over four hours you could put enough energy to see in Mexico into the ground by vibrating this building. But um, nonetheless, it's true that you can do this. And um, turns out you can't really use these for structural investigations very well, these building forced vibrations, because they're extremely narrow band. He tried to make some group velocity estimates based on the dispersion, but it's, it's very challenging to do. Um, what probably you could learn more about if you were to develop a better physics-based model of the building is the soil structure interaction. From a perspective um, of uh, a civil engineer, they often refer to something called radiation damping. Then when you have soil structure interaction, one of the ways that you lose energy in a building is through leakage of seismic waves out the base of the building. Um, and they usually just refer to this as radiation damping and make a damping ratio for it and say at the end of the day, but in reality, you know, the uh, flexibility of the foundation, the shape of the foundation, the relative amount of rocking versus shearing, um, how flexible the foundation is to um, vertical displacement are all going to affect what's radiated away from the building. And so I think with a physics-based model, we could probably learn a lot about soil structure interaction this way. Um, but I just want to show some quick observations of this now in the time that remains. So distributed acoustic sensing, I, I won't go through this, but I think actually you've had several seminars on distributed acoustic sensing. Um, but it's a, basically a way of converting a fiber optic cable into a dense array of sensors and allows us to see these structural vibrations in the urban environment in extremely high resolution. So, for example, here at Caltech, we have this Pasadena DAS array. It's a 37-kilometer loop in the city of Pasadena. We have one DAS instrument shooting clockwise. There's a really bad reflection here. So then we have a cheaper, older instrument shooting the other direction in a secondary fiber just to get good SNR on this segment. Um, and here at Caltech is where um, Caltech Hall or Millikan Library is. And when we shake the building, we can see these Rayleigh waves all throughout the city. Um, they're discernible in the raw time domain data. Here you can see this is a couple kilometers distance and time. Um, you can see these are cars and then there's some long period drift and other crap going on in the in the data. But when we filter this, you can see these beautiful Rayleigh waves traveling on the cable around 400 meters per second. This is, happens to be an example from one of the overtones at 5 hertz. And we can track the velocities on a sub-block uh, scale throughout the city. Um, and we see that there are variations in VS30. Um, the Rayleigh velocity at 4.9 hertz is not that dissimilar from VS30. Um, on the scale of 20 to 40 percent from one block to the next. Um, so that's notable, and we're in the process of doing a more uh, comprehensive investigation throughout the city. But I want to talk about a, a much more, I don't know, out there um, example. Uh, we we have, have also looked at this problem of building generated vibrations in the context of offshore energy development, because wind farms generate a lot of seismic energy. You can use arrays quite far away to locate high frequency seismic radiation back to wind developments. Um, and we wanted to know, you know, if we actually go in and look at a DAS on a cable in a wind farm, can we do things um, to like figure out, for example, the shear wave velocity at the bottom 
for the structural vibrations of the individual turbines using that pre-existing uh, fiber because there's fiber all throughout wind farms that's used in the same cables that carry the power back to shore and also do internet telecommunications between the cables. So it's basically this giant spider web of fiber optic cables that we can utilize for investigations. And so in 2018, we collected uh, this data from a pre-existing uh, wind farm in the Belgian North Sea uh, along a 42-kilometer cable here that's buried, um, that's meant for power transmission. Each of these boxes is a wind farm development. And the raw data is really messy, um, but it contains a component of seismic waves, which you can see here in the FK domain, around you know, 500 to uh, a couple kilometers per second. I'm just going to skip through some of this um, in the interest of time. One thing we can do with this is just using normal ambient seismic noise due tomography and extract parameters like VS30 all along the cable. That's not very new, but well, in the process of doing this, we, you know, we're doing ambient noise correlation. We expect to see this nice direct wave propagating away from our um, cross-correlation source. And instead, okay, we do see that, but we also see all sorts of crazy, wacky hyperbolae that make no sense. And what these really represent are secondary sources of scatterers. Um, if you imagine that you have a linear array and you're doing cross-correlations and you have some additional source or scatter off here, in a common source gather where we have, like here, our source and then all the channels we're cross-correlating it with, um, the travel time curves for these two different waves, the direct wave along our array and the secondary wave from this off-axis source um, are quite similar in their move out. Whereas if we rearrange this in terms of pairs of consistently separated channels, common offset gather, we flatten the direct wave as long as the lateral variations and shear wave velocity are pretty similar. And we can see this um, uh, secondary source very clearly. And if we do this along this cable, which passes by all these wind turbines, we can see that there are all of these um, secondary sources at high frequencies, which are presumably related to wind turbines. We can apply, um, because of the really dense array-based nature of DAS, we can apply uh, sort of imaging or migration to localize these uh, high-frequency vibrations to their sources, and we can see that they're actually associated with, as you might have guessed, individual wind turbines um, along the array. Um, in particular here, this Rentel wind farm, where we only see a few of them, was under construction at the time of this, so only a handful of the turbines were active. We went back for a short data set in 2019. Here's the same wind farm, Rentel. There's nine turbines installed there now, and you can see all nine turbines in this common offset data. Um, and there was an entire other wind farm here, Northern, that was built in between the two acquisitions. And you can see all six of the closest wind turbines. Um, and so these are Rayleigh waves or Schulte waves at the seafloor radiated by the vibrations of the turbine under the cyclic loading from the rotating um, prop that excites all of the resident modes of the building. And we can actually look even closer and verify this interpretation because if you see, I know this image is a little bit saturated on the right, but you can see that there are all these little teeny cables. These are the umbilicals that cross between individual turbines and bring the power back to one big substation. And so what you see here is a DAS acquisition filtered two to 10 Hertz on one of those umbilical cables. And this is here, it's on the seafloor. It goes up in the J tube, which is kind of like a, uh, basically a, a walkway into the side of the turbine for um, the cable. And then it's hanging freely in, in the turbine column. And so you're getting all this random noise. 
And then it comes out the other side. Here it runs near another turbine, goes into a turbine and out of a turbine, et cetera. And so you can see is that each turbine is radiating energy away from it. And you can see this continually as you go up into the J-tube and actually part of the structure. Um, and then when you're out onto the seafloor in between, you can see the contributions interfering from two adjacent turbines. And so what are we going to, you know, what can we do with this? Uh, obviously, you know, we, we I, I breezed through it, but we can use these waves as an active source for subsurface investigations to measure things like shear wave velocity, um, both in an urban environment where we have the vibrations of Caltech Hall and offshore where we have the vibrations of offshore platforms or drilling rigs or wind turbines. Um, but in terms of the structure themselves, uh, we should be able to do quite a lot because we can clearly identify the resonant modes, at least a couple of the resonant modes in these far field vibrations. Um, we can localize these to individual turbines without having to have instruments in those turbines. And because the uh, uh, vibrations are generated by the rocking and shearing of the foundation, we should have information about the health of the foundation. Um, in particular, wind turbines, offshore wind turbines, have a very, very short design life, something around 20 to 25 years for most of them. Um, and this is because there's damage to the blades and other things that can happen. But one of the big things that can happen is, you know, you stick turbines in the soft mud offshore Belgium in the North Sea, and they can start to tilt over a long operation life because they're basically jackhammering in their foundation like a pile driver in this soft clay mud. And um, even a tilt of less than one degree can be enough to decommission a turbine. Second, they modify the flow, the hydrodynamic conditions around them when they're in the water column. And so they have this problem called scour, where basically the locally perturbed currents create like vortex shredding off of the, um, bay, off of the cylindrical turbine structure. And uh, that'll lead to increased sediment removal around the base of the turbine. And that can also cause you know, issues with the foundation and tilting. And so the conclusion is that there's a lot of value in having dense urban and infrastructure associated uh, arrays for engineering applications. Um, for this particular application, we really need more physics-based models in order to exploit it for soil structure interaction studies, um, but I think it's very promising. So I'm, I'm happy to take questions on either of the two topics. I hope I've convinced you that big data should be a, a frontier in engineering seismology. Tell your civil engineer friends um, that they should get excited about databases and whatnot. And uh, if you want to talk more about this, I have a SCEC poster next week where I'll be talking about the first part of this talk um, on the changes in the natural frequencies of Caltech Hall. Um, and I'd be happy to chat more with you then. Nice. Thank you, Ethan. Um, so do we have any questions? People can raise their hand or type question in the chat. Andy? Andy Michael? Yeah. Um, hey, Ethan, not sure if my camera will turn on or not. Um, it strikes me that Caltech Hall is sort of unique for monitoring from the outside the building, doing the monitoring of its impact on the far field in that it's really tall and therefore has lower frequencies than pretty much anything else on campus. There's nothing, I don't think there's anything else close to its height around. But I'm starting to think about like applying some of this to other environments. If you went downtown San Francisco, there's a ton of buildings of similar heights 
or I know we've talked about doing some, you know, running some fiber tests and seeing if we, seeing if we could manage to get fiber that we could use at Moffitt Field. But again, there most of the buildings are fairly low. There's some that are pretty massive. Um, I don't know if NASA wants us monitoring their wind tunnels, but um, what what do you think it takes to be able to do structural monitoring from the far field like that, you know, with fiber going past buildings? What what's, what sort of setup do you need for the the uh, sort of the the neighborhood? Well, first of all, I think you need the building to actually emit enough energy, um, and this is probably going to be an issue for shorter buildings. Um, it turns out at Caltech, you're right, it's very uh, uneven. We can actually, people have played around before with using the forced vibration of Caltech Hall to do forced vibration tests of adjacent buildings because it emits enough energy because the building is just so massive, right, that once you get it going, even off resonance, um, the way it weighs so much that it's just creating very large displacements in the soil. Um, so I think that that's going to be a problem for short buildings because you can't get them to move that much. Um, the, the overall displacements and the overall accelerations are going to be smaller. Um, I think that in the context of uh, multiple buildings, though, this is this is the so what I showed it very briefly here with the uh, imaging. These these turbines are only separated by a, a few hundred meters from each oh, other. Oh yeah, um, and they all have the exact same frequency because they have identical construction, and so. The, the advantage of DAS is if you really have enough channels and they're in a complex enough geometry like this bend here where you can actually do imaging, right? When you have a line, it's not very helpful from a knowledge gain perspective. But if you have a lot of channels in a diverse orientation, um, you can totally localize these vibrations back to structures that are only separated by a few hundred meters, even if they have the same frequency based on, you know, the relative travel time of those vibrations across the array. So I think that just the, the large end nature of DAS itself should make that possible in a place like San Francisco where it's, you know, building after building right next to each other. Yeah, of course, I mean, right, a few hundred meters would be pretty pretty big spread between buildings in a downtown area, but right. with more more data, you, you may be able to knock that down. I mean, well, if you knock it down by an order of magnitude, you're, you're, you're there, yeah. And if you actually go in and out of the buildings, right, then you've got some non-ambiguous um, right. channels. Cool. Thanks. A really interesting talk. Thanks, Ethan. Jamie, do you want to ask a question? Yeah, sure. Great talk, Ethan. Um, really happy to see somebody advocate for uh, recording continuously in structures and geotech arrays. Um, that's really where my heart is, the geotech arrays. And uh, I, it was interesting that if I, if I, got you correctly in the first half of this talk i was watching on my phone and and so correct me if i'm wrong but is the the building stiffens when you have precipitation is that correct yes yeah which which is uh you know what we see in um at garner valley one of our geotech arrays where we have a, a small slab structure um and a cross hole array that runs underneath that slab and we can measure the velocity of the soil uh, as the water table goes up and down with you know seasonal changes, we actually see the the velocity of the soil decreases as the water table goes up, um, and we attribute that to excess pore pressure reducing the stiffness of the soil. And maybe it's I don't know if you have measurements of where the water table is at, at Milliken, um, uh, or maybe even it would be interesting to put a cross hole array in and measure the properties of the soil, but um, 
it, it's possible if you're in the unsaturated where you have you know some moisture but it's not saturated you could see an increase in velocity so maybe that's what's what's happening there i don't know um mm -hmm. do you have a, a feel for where the water table is below the building i i don't um they they when they built the building they said it was 15 meters and subsequently people have never found it again so that's a it's an open question uh, i don't know what maybe we've changed it somehow by building things around there but it, it theoretically is quite shallow but we've not been able to find it how many meters 15 said 15 okay yeah so that that um yeah okay so that could be it could be that you're when you add water in the soil but it's not actually saturated because the water table doesn't come up that high that you do actually stiffen the soil uh, and that could contribute to what you're seeing in the data so it could be a combination of it may maybe it's not has nothing to do with the structure or maybe it just has to do with the stiffening of the soil um, but that's something that you could measure separately which would be interesting you're right it would be interesting to put like a, a an array in just for that purpose here um, i think it's also a little hard to tell what's important whether it's an increase in the shear modules or the bulk modules of the soil that really matters most right if you talk about shearing of the foundation then you care about the shear velocity of adjacent in the soil but if you are caring about the rocking of the foundation, then you care about the bulk modules of the soil under the foundation, right? It's going to provide the main resistance. And so it's hard to know whether you really should be looking at VP or VS, which obviously for some saturation models have an opposite trend. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Not sure what was going on there. <laughs> um, well, thanks. That was really great. I'll look. I look. I'll look for you at the SCEC meeting because I'm interested in talking to you some more about it. So, great. Yep. Alan Young, you have a question? Yeah. Um, nice talk, Evan. Uh, oh, Ethan. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I understand in your last slide you indicated that. Um, that you know, for your arrays, you could use phase velocity to get to the time average shear wave velocity of the upper 30 meter or VS30. Uh, and I wonder if you can expand a little bit on, like, when you say phase velocity to VS30, are you uh, talking about the, the the customary inversion component right, I just in mean between, like, like MASW? Um, or SASW, the classic surface wave methods, which is basically what we did here. We applied interferometry to ambient noise, picked you know some of these different modes out for their dispersion using uh, array-based transformation. Because basically, what you can do here is treat it like a you know a small geophone array, um, and then inverted that for. In this case, we used a modified um, power law velocity because that's really a pretty good approximation of shallow seafloor sediments, but um, you know, you could do more arbitrary layered models or whatever you would normally do for uh, uh, MASW. Hmm. Nice. nice. I, I would uh, uh, I'd encourage you to visit Jose Gomez's poster at SCEC. Mm -hmm. uh, he's uh, leading an effort um, um, with a, a bunch of us uh, to circumvent this whole inversion component in between phase velocity to VS30. Um, and um, Jose is on this call right now. Um, he may or may not 
be able to speak up on this, uh, but I, I think that uh, going from, say, just uh, phase velocity to inversion to PS30 is, is that middle step is actually not, I, I, I feel it's not necessarily needed if you're in sedimentary it's environments. If you, you can look at the phase velocity and almost have a one-to-one, -one, you know, um, estimate of phase velocity to VS30 itself, right? So um, I think you could even go further with it. I, I had a conversation about this once with Victor Sai, um, who has been trying to develop some sort of, you know, semi-empirical approximations that work well for surface wave properties. And I think that, you know, if you take this from the, like, Thompson-Haskell framework, right, you really care about two things. One is you're measuring phase velocity dispersion, which is basically the um, determinant of your Haskell-Thompson matrix. And on the far other side of things in geotechnical analysis, what you care about for like seed and Idris type site response is just the product, you know, of that Thompson-Haskell matrix multiplied by some additional damping term. And so it seems like there should really be like you shouldn't first invert for the modulus of that matrix and then multiply by that matrix again, right? That there should be basically one unified step that should be at least approximatable um, for most, you know, certain classes of layered soils. Um, right. But nobody's really gone far enough to develop that yet so that we can go straight from phase velocity into ground motion without having to make any sort of layered medium assumptions in between or do any sort of damping in, in the inversion. Right, right. I, I remember Victor's paper with, I think it's somebody else at Golden at, at USGS, and, but this is only applicable for uh, sedimentary environments, which also, um, you know, one has to say that VS30 only works really at sedimentary environments, right, as a proxy for site amplification. So, right, right. right. Thanks. Thanks, Ethan. I, I really appreciate this. And I do encourage you to visit Jose Gomez's poster at SCEC. Okay, thank you. Ethan, there's one question in the chat from Paul Bowden. Connecting the two parts of your great talk, is there potential to use DAS and fibers running into all those buildings to monitor their responses? I think the answer is probably yes. Um, we, I, I, we have, we've thought about doing this with, with Caltech Hall. And part of the problem is if I just like schematically go back all the way to the beginning. Um, where is the fiber actually in the building, right? You know, when you're coming down here across campus, the fire river is buried. Can you see my mouse? Let me switch back to the laser pointer. It's buried in some conduit, right? And then it comes up into the building, and then there's a giant spool in the wall of, like, you know, some closet where they do the telecom, and then it hangs freely in a wall cavity as it goes in between the floors going up. And so when we've looked at this building-related data, at least for most civil structures, you don't really get many channels that are coupled to anything inside the actual building. Um, and if you did, at least theoretically, you'd mostly be measuring the vertical strain in the walls, which is a really strange metric. Um, you know, as, as we saw, just looking at the east-west versus the north-south accelerations in the roof of the building, you get dynamically, dramatically different res results because it really is two only mildly coupled separate vibrational systems in orthogonal directions that are mostly horizontal. Um, and therefore, you know, measuring the vertical strain in a wall component or some, you know, it, it would be really hard to interpret that data. Um, that being said, there's been some great work um, 
via the SOGA group at Berkeley Civil Engineering working on embedding DAS arrays into wind turbines, bridges, and other structures. And so if you actually know where the channels are and you've made effort to tape them down or lay them into some sort of epoxy so that the fiber is actually coupled to the building and you know where it is, um, then you can learn a lot. They've done some really great analysis with that. But as far as pre-existing fibers, I think you learn more next to the building than you do in the building, mostly because of the vertical hanging problem. Cool, thanks. Makes sense. Any other questions for Ethan before we sign off? Okay, if not, let's thank Ethan and uh, we can stick around in this chat if, if anyone wants to kind of casually talk, but otherwise um, that concludes today's seminar. So thank you very much for coming.